Today we are fortunate to have with us Dr. Akinshola Akinbiyi. Dr. Akinshola Akinbiyi has an MBBS from the University of Ibadan, Nigeria, an MD degree. He is a fellow of the Medical College of Psychiatry in Nigeria. He is a fellow of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. His current positions include being a consultant psychiatrist with the Mercy Mental Health in Victoria, Australia. He's an adjunct lecturer, University of Notre Dame, Australia. He's a consultant psychiatrist, Harvester Private Consulting Suites in Australia. And he's a consultant psychiatrist, Wyndham Clinic Private Hospital in Australia. He is also the director of ECT at Wyndham Clinic Private Hospital in Australia. We are very fortunate to have with us today, Dr. Akinshola Akinbiyi. Welcome. Thank you for inviting me. As of March 27 of 2021, in the United States, there has been 30 million cases of COVID. In Australia, there were 29,000. And in the United States, there have been about 600,000 deaths in Australia, about 909. And this is from the John Hopkins University. The global pandemic has indeed been global. How are people dealing with this with respect to mental health in Australia? I must confess that it has been quite challenging for us in Australia, especially when during the early part of the pandemic, where we got a spike in my own state of Victoria in Australia. That was where the majority of the data that occurred in Australia occurred in Victoria, the state that I'm residing in, that I also work in. It was quite alarming and worrisome. And that was what drove us to what we could call draconian quarantine. The quarantine was so draconian, but it was effective. So I probably say it was good work done. But the quarantine also had a lot of unwanted and of foreseen ramifications, it affected people's mental health drastically. Wow. We know that with respect to mental health, depression rates per country, uh, China is number one, America is number three, Australia is number 55, and the British Virgin Islands and Vatican City have one of the lowest depression rates in the world. Why do you think the depression rates in Australia are much less than in America? There could be different theories why the depression rates are low in Australia. But I probably like to think that Australia has generous social welfare system. Everybody is catered for in Australia. That I probably think could contribute towards the lower depression rate compared to America. Another thing that we have also in Australia is we have like a lot of peace of mind with regard to our health. Everybody in Australia has access to health. If those things are assured, the risk factors for depression diminishes. And I'll probably say that we also have a good work-life balance in Australia. When I first got to Australia, there used to be a joke that the average Australian, when he buys a car, the next thing he's going to buy is either a caravan or a boat. They take their leisure time seriously. So the, we have a sort of good work-life balance and a lot of the jobs here in Australia are also protected. These are, I think, are some of the things that 
contribute towards the lower depression rates that we find in Australia. Wow. So, you know, while depression rates are rising around the world, treatment is becoming more available and accessible, uh, like you said, readily available in Australia. The rising depression rates are also attributed to more people seeking and receiving a diagnosis and treatment for mental illness rather than going undiagnosed. For example, in the United States and several countries, the stigma surrounding mental illness has gradually decreased. This allows it to become more normal to discuss mental illness openly and encourages people to seek help when they need it. For instance, like we saw with Harry and Meghan interview in March 2021. Has there always been a stigma around discussing mental illness in Australia? Yes, there is a deadly stigma around mental illness, and I think this stigma carries across all cultures. A study by the Mental Health Council of Australia found that about 85% of Australians with a mental illness survey were worried what other people will view them unfavorably because of their mental illnesses. In Australia, we've had our own fair share of disasters. So you could say that we've lived through our previous mistakes. We've had lots of drought, bushfires, and floods. So there is policies in place to prevent discrimination if you have a mental illness. But no matter how much policies you might put in place to protect patients, to protect the citizen, this stigma is there. It is slowly getting better. And then practically, I still have some of my patients that when they are about to apply for a new job, they are asking that, oh, do they really need to put in that they have a mental illness? And I tell them that they officially, you do not need to put in that you have a mental illness. You go into your own price, personal information. You need to divulge it to anybody. However, if you do end up with a mental illness and you don't divulge this, if you not divulge develop a mental illness later down the track, it might put you at a disadvantage with regard to our own work cover rules. The stigma is there. It is getting better, and we hope that it will continue to get better as people get more educated. Wow. A nation's culture can significantly impact its mental, its population mental health and the availability of mental health treatment services. For example, while depression rates, we know they're relatively low in Japan, suicide rates are high for children and teens ages 10 to 19 there. And this is most likely due to pressure to do well in school and work and conform to group norms. Could you speak around the culture of suicide in Australia and maybe compare that to your home country of Nigeria? The culture of suicide here, it tends to be, sometimes it's a bit difficult to tease out culture and then deliberate self-harm because sometimes it almost goes hand in hand. But the culture of suicide is definitely here and it is usually due to, as I earlier said, that we've had our own fair share of natural disaster, the droughts, the floods, which are flashpoints for suicide in Australia. The culture definitely is there, but compared to Nigeria, here in Australia, suicide is more like a cry for help. Sometimes it's completed, sometimes it's an attempt. But in Nigeria, it is almost like a taboo to commit suicide. Because of our poor health infrastructure in Nigeria, most suicide in Nigeria end up to be complete suicide. The patient will most likely die. And in Nigeria, we have a few 
protective factors. Like there is this culture of being grateful in Nigeria. No matter how horrible your scenario is, you look around and say that, oh, I'm still better than the next person. Like in the case of I grew up that had no shoes until I found somebody that had no feet. And then also, we must really commend the faith healers in Nigeria, or I like to commend them, because they play a significant role in catering for the mental health of Nigerians. Did you say the, the, faith, healers, the faith healers? Yeah, the faith healers, uh, the, the babalawos, the religious, the pastors, the imams, they all play a significant role in the mental health of Nigerians, and if they are not there, most likely, mental health and suicide might be on the upswing in Nigeria. We do not have enough psychiatrists, we don't have enough doctors, and they are more like informal counsellors to help patients. So are you saying that at times in resource-poor countries or in countries where there's a, a deficit of uh, professionals treating mental health, there have been surrogate people that have been helping the situations like people's religious leaders, the pastors for the Christians, the imams for the Muslims, and the spiritual, traditional leaders that you call the babalawos. Could you just explain some of that, how that helps people's mental psyche? When we talked about mental illness, there's the high prevalence mental illness like the anxiety and depression. When it's mild and moderate, and these organizations help them by providing a formal form of counseling, I think there is need to really work hand in hand with the religious leaders to identify the severe mental illnesses early so that they could refer them onward to more orthodox form of treatment for the mental illness. I think this kind of thing has always been used for obstetric cases in Nigeria that they tend to, the hospital tend to work with the local birth centers so that they can earlier identify at-risk groups and early referral. I think this is something that we should really be doing and yeah, we are doing it, but I think it, they need to intensify this a lot more. The countries with the lowest rates of depression, they've recently added mental health screening, treatment services to their, to their healthcare infrastructure, which in part could explain the reason for the low depression rates. Conversely, countries with widespread access to quality healthcare, specifically mental healthcare services, could have high rates because of availability of screening and treatment services. Additionally, certain depression symptoms are more common in some societies than others due to several factors. Like you said, you know, anxiety is one of the commoner ones. What does mental health screening mean? How is it done? And how can women specifically benefit from mental health screening through all stages of their lives? Mental health screening. With mental health screening, there is need for the general populace to know what is mental health and what is an abnormal mental health state. There is need for early recognition for the patients and the carers and their families. In Australia, we there is a lot of work being done and we have quite a few organizations that tend to educate the public on how to identify mental illnesses and what to do. 
the more common ones, the good resources are like, are you okay? And it's almost like a slogan in almost every workplace. Are you okay? Are you okay? And they run like sort of little, little courses on what to do when you find somebody with a mental illness. And then there's also another organization called the Mental Health First Aid. That is more targeted towards the public. When something now goes wrong, the GPs in Australia, they are more like the gatekeepers to mental health. And there is quite a lot of support for the GPs on dealing with mental health issues. So when you say the GPs, you mean like the general practitioners, which like in the United States, those are the family physicians, right? Yes, the family physicians. Here we call them the GPs. They are more like the gatekeepers. And they have quite a lot of resources available to them for our referral to see a psychologist, a counselor, social workers. And they can then also refer to the psychiatrist. However, in the metropolitan area, this kind of referral pathways is quite robust. But by the time you now move to the rural communities, it becomes patchy. And that's where the Australian government has, has been focusing on telehealth for rural communities so that they could have the benefit of a, seeing a psychiatrist using telehealth. This started before COVID, but with the advent of COVID, the pandemic, uh, telehealth has really taken off a lot. It's not quite commonplace now. But there's still a lot of work that needs to be done to ensure that this is available to everybody. We could say that we're a little bit lucky in Australia that everybody has a right to see the family physician, the GPs, and the GPs can then do an onward referral. So they're more like the screening, the first port of call in the treatment pathway. Wow. And indeed, Australia has been noted as being a leader in mental health policy making and management. As you said, Australia has gone through a rigorous process towards making their mental health policies, and they have a rich history and a series of changes. Dr. Akimbi, you are a psychiatrist and a specialist in mental health. How did you choose this path? What is your passion? What is your pain in this profession? And if you were to speak to something to encourage young or minority uh, people looking at pursuing this pathway of training, what advice would you give them? Thank you for that question. Why did I end up in psychiatry? I ended up in psychiatry when I was doing my internship at the military hospital Yamba, now called this hospital Yamba. Then I had a good, the consultant that was looking after us then was quite an interesting chap, Brigadier Okulate. Psychiatry is rewarding and it can be quite rewarding when you see patients do well. When you look at all the medical illnesses around, I think it's say it's when you have a mental illness that the patient can be it can be quite debilitating and devastating and the cause it and leaves a lot of disability. When you start the treatment and the patient start getting better, it's it's one of the most beautiful things you have ever seen. It's really, really rewarding. At the same time, when I got to Australia, I came across this quote and it sums up my role in psychiatry. It's called the Serenity Prayer, which is a prayer written by the American theologian Rehold Neighbor, I think 1892 to 1971. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, 
and wisdom to know the difference. Sometimes in psychiatry, some things cannot change. Some things will not get better. But how can you now support the person involved to have a better quality of life with an illness that will most likely not get better? But the trick is to know where to intervene, where to offer support. One of the more painful things about psychiatry is when you see somebody not doing well as a result of their mental state, poor insight, cultural practices, religious ideas, and they are not adherent with your medication or with your therapy. It can be a bit disappointing and a bit painful that, oh, this will turn out not like this. But as Alice said, sometimes you just have to accept that it is what it is. Some things you can't change, some things you can't change. Psychiatry is rewarding, but we tend to work long hours. And one of the more... Longer than OBGYNs? Uh, most likely not, but lucky enough. <laughs> One of the things about us is that we like to write long letters. The OBG person will see a patient write about three, four, five lines, but the secondary probably write about three or four, five pages. When minority ethnic groups, especially in Australia, we are still not that well represented in the field of psychiatry. When I go down to conferences, the minorities, are, we are not really that many who chose psychiatry. And when I see patients from the minority groups, sometimes they are happy to see me because they feel that if we share the same cultural background. And that goes a long way in establishing the therapeutic milieu. We are taught that you have to be culturally sensitive, but by the time you are part of that culture, it gives it a different meaning when you're talking about cultural practice in a culturally sensitive way. Another thing about psychiatry is the engagement and that I really like to talk about. By the time a patient has faith in you, they tend to follow your treatment pathway and just by that they tend to have a much better a much better a much better outlook and outcome. Psychiatry is rewarding and I can only encourage as many doctors as I see the younger doctors that please psychiatry is rewarding. Wow, thank you. Thank you so much. I hope that encourages somebody somewhere. In Forbes magazine, Alice Brewster talked about a mental health pandemic. And studies have suggested that whether you have been diagnosed with a mental health condition or not before the pandemic, many people have struggled with their mental well-being. Has this been your experience in your part of the world? And I know just for our listeners, Dr. Akinshola Akinbiyi is in Melbourne, Australia. We're podcasting from Forsyth, Georgia. There is a 17-hour real difference between us. So Dr. Akinbiyi, has this been your experience in your part of the world about this mental health pandemic, especially with this COVID-19 pandemic? Yes, the pandemic took a severe toll on people's mental health. It is due to multiple reasons. The regular support group are not able to provide face-to-face -face support, especially when we had the lockdown. The lockdown was quite severe that it was that it was only essential services that were able to move around and then you also need a permit to be able to move around to go to your workplace. You needed a permit. 
he needed a permit to be wow. able to move on the road. But why was he successful? Remember I said that we have a generous welfare system. By the time you keep people at home, they need a source of income. And the general welfare system uh, really helped us with the lockdown because uh, financially uh, there was a bit of uh, support for people financially. And during the pandemic, a lot of specialized treatments were not available because you, there's so much you can do through telehealth. Therapy like uh, EMDR, eye movement sensitization, uh, reprocessing, a form of psychotherapy was not possible through telehealth. And then people with pre-existing anxiety disorders and mental health problems were also more at risk of experiencing significant anxiety and distress during the disease, the pandemic outbreak. Is that because they were basically restricted to their house? So if you had anxiety before and maybe you have a uh, phobia for being indoors, then it got worse? It got worse. And being placed in quarantine is an unpleasant experience and it does have, can have long-term negative psychological effects. You tend to be more uh, increased in anxiety, increased depression. And then a recent review found the potential psychological effects of quarantine Include depression, PTSD symptoms, confusion, anger, boredom, loneliness, and increased substance use. The review also, uh, another review found that as many as a quarter of patients in quarantine had trauma-related mental health problems, with evidence that these symptoms could last for a number of years or longer. Mm-hmm. And then the fear of infection was also quite a significant factor in triggering anxiety and depressive response. Inadequate information expensive financial loss, and then the stigma associated with some particular ethnic groups or some particular groups with getting the infection. Then, we shouldn't forget the healthcare workers who are the frontline workers, the nurses, the doctors, and auxiliary staff who have also been found to have high levels of anxiety during the period of pandemics because we've had quite a lot of uh, floods and whatnot. They are at risk because they are dealing with people who could have potential infection. Then, a funny thing is that in Australia, most of the healthcare workers are women. And they're now juggling multiple roles. They are now more at risk because they are they are working in the healthcare field. And then by further, they are also women. Some of them are now more at risk of job loss because they work. Some of them, they, they work, their work is uh, it's not stable. They are facing the threats of financial loss, although it's a bit cushioned, but the financial loss is there because nobody could go to work, only essential services. So the unemployed and casual workers are also at increase of poorer mental health during the times of this economic instability as a result of this COVID, COVID pandemic infection. Hmm. Wow. This is a lot of information. But, you know, like you said, the mental health pandemic hasn't been felt equally. And research has highlighted a significant increase in poor mental health in pregnant people during COVID-19. The pregnant people have fears about partners being excluded from appointments because of limited people at office visits for the few office visits that happened. They had fears about partners being excluded at delivery of their babies. They had increased anxieties, worries about job security after the baby's birth. All of this contributed to poor mental health in women. 
many people also had their support network taken away after they gave birth to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Sarah Hughes, a chief executive officer of the Center for Mental Health, stated that COVID-19 mental health pandemic has not affected everyone equally. It has placed special pressure on women during pregnancy and after they've given birth. And it has made inequalities that were always there in plain sight even more pronounced. How can we use this opportunity to review and reframe what support women should expect for their mental health during the perinatal period and to make sure that we prepare, if possible, for any future crisis to avoid another loss of support at a crucial time in people's lives. The good thing about this pandemic is it taught us that medicine can be practiced in different formats. In the past, there is this traditional way of thinking that medicine can only be practiced face to face. But pandemic have taught us that, yes, telehealth is there, might not be as good as the face-to-face contact, but it is there. And there is need to explore novel use of telehealth. In Australia, we initially had the difficulty that there was no Medicare code available for, for you to see a patient using telehealth. So emergency legislation had to be rushed into place with a time frame, initially three months, then six months, now it's been rolled on to June. But there is now pressure that this should be part of the medical process for Australians. When telehealth is there and we're kind of used to telehealth, then it becomes a bit more acceptable. And it's all lessons learned. We've made a lot of mistakes during this COVID, during this pandemic. Some people who either due to not having adequate knowledge about telehealth, about how to use IT, internet access, there were a lot of mistakes that were made, but I believe that we are going to learn and we are learning and we're going to find novel use for telehealth. And by the time uh, some new technology comes or augmented reality, things can only get better. So I think one of the problems that believe that there is need for government to continue to fund telehealth and to keep on exploring how best to use telehealth. This will go a long way in preparing us for future pandemic. A pandemic, when it comes, it is what it is, there will be lockdown. People's movement will be restricted, but we need to walk around this using telehealth. I think telehealth is the wave of the future. Now, I know that in rural areas in America, there can be issues with internet connectivity. You know, it looks like these days everybody has a phone, but there can be issues with internet connectivity, especially in rural areas. Do you guys see those kind of problems in your rural areas in Australia? And what are some of the things that can be done to help? Because you need connectivity for telehealth, right? In Australia, we have two forms of telehealth. A telephone call is accepted. And televideo is also accepted for, for billing purposes. Most of the time, even within Melbourne, I'm talking to the patient, the internet connectivity gets so poor 
that sometimes I need to use two methods. I'm looking at the video and I'm calling them on the mobile phone. Sometimes they don't even have uh, internet access on their mobile phone and they will now have to resort to using the telephone. I think we need to be flexible that when we talk about telehealth, it does not necessarily mean it has to be televideo. A audio connection too should be good. And it's all lessons learned. As I earlier said, there is a traditional way of thinking about medicine that it has to be face-to-face. -face. But my experience with some of my GP colleagues is that they are using the telephone, they are using telehealth, and maybe the outcome is quite favorable. Yeah, and also in Forsyth, we have that problem too. We're doing a video conference, you know, with the patient connectivity is gone, and then we have to revert to telephone calls. And that has also been accepted by the insurance payers. So, Dr. Kimbi, if you are going to give like women, like some final closing thoughts or advice as to what to do during this time of pandemic, I know you talked about even non-traditional support, you know, the family support, the support from religious leaders. What are the practical tips you could give like everybody, but especially women and maybe women from your experience in underserved areas, what can they do to just mitigate the mental health issues that have come from this COVID-19 pandemic? Just in, in closing and final thoughts? I have something that I talk to my patients about, that to have good mental health, the default setting is structure. Once you have structure, a few things will click into place. There's something that I call positive steps to well-being. These are routine things that we do on a regular daily basis, but sometimes when we are under stress, or when our mental health starts declining, they, our ability to function start declining. I'll just read some of the things about the positive steps to well-being. The first thing is be kind to yourself. Our culture, genes, religion, upbringing, education, gender, sexual beliefs, and life makes us who we are. We all have bad days, and it's good to have a bad day. Be kind to yourself. And then the last one, not the last one, the other thing is accept it as it is. Some things you can change, some things you can't change. Accept it as it is. What you can't change, there is nothing stressing about it. It comes with practice. It's a work in progress. And then there is the other stuff like regular exercise. Take up a hobby. Have a time for yourself. Have some fun. Be creative. Help others. Give back to the community. Get involved in community work. Relax. Make time for yourself. Allow yourself to chill out and relax. Eat healthily. And a lot of stuff is now, a lot of work is now being done about we are what we eat. Food plays an important role in our mental health. Sometimes if we eat, if we don't eat right, we gain weight. And when we gain weight, it has a negative impact on our mental health. Balanced sleep and connect with others. And last but not the least, beware of drinks and drugs. There is the tendency to self-medicate with alcohol or recreational drugs, but on the long term, it does have delicious impact on our mental health. And then see the bigger picture. We all give different meaning to situations and we see things from our point of view. Broaden out your perspective and consider the bigger picture, the helicopter view. Always challenge. Is this fact or opinion? It was quite amusing during the pandemic. 
a lot of theory that was being bandied around, like 5G telephone causing an infection. And you now start wondering that how did some people come to believe this? Challenge whatever you see and then choose your source of information. Just don't, there is a tendency that we get our news from social media. Social media is good for the entertainment factor, but for serious information, I think there is need to get reliable, credit, credible sources. And are you okay? Just that conversation to a friend can really mean a lot. Wow, thank you so much. I like that slogan, are you okay? I just want to thank you for bringing that slogan on. It's a simple sentence, but it can reveal a lot of things. So to our listeners, to the women out there, feel free to ask friends and family that simple question, are you okay? And then go from there. We are fortunate to have with us today Dr. Akinshola Akinbiyi from Melbourne, Australia. He has been contributing to our effort at education with a goal to having the conversation going and ultimately reducing maternal mortality, that is women dying from and around pregnancy, and severe morbidity, that is women having serious illnesses, and uh, for women everywhere. And this is a podcast of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. My name is Dr. Bola Sogadi. I'm your host from the rural city of Forsyth, Georgia. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Akimbi. Thank you.